Warmai, Warandri, Kulin, Nora, Nyalu, Brabrangul, Darug, Delai. I want to begin by acknowledging that we're on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present and also uh, extend that respect to everyone present today and everyone contributing parts of their life to make our country a better place. The following recordings are from the Indigenous Place and Partnerships Conference held at the University of Melbourne in April 2018. You're about to hear a random selection of presentations and interviews with presenters and conference participants. Welcome everybody to the University of Melbourne. Uh, my name is Jim McCluskey and I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. This is a really important gathering because it's an opportunity for us just to look at a cross-section of what's going on across the university, a cross-section of the way we are embracing Indigenous knowledge and the challenges we face. And so there's a mix of Indigenous-led research, research that is primarily around Indigenous issues, and then non-Indigenous-led research that addresses the same canvas. And there's a collaboration between academics across the institution, bringing a, a multidisciplinary optic to quite complex challenges. And you're going to hear about some of that today, and I think for that reason alone, this is a really, really important moment in time for this university. Thank you. Here are some snippets from a presentation entitled Tiwi Island's Biological Environment Database, a safe way to store important information about Tiwi plants, animals and country. We've gathered lots of available data um, into a database. We've got records for about 1,400 plant species, about 400 land and sea animals and close to 200 environmental data sets. So it's going to allow us scientists to take on more students for small projects um, that will contribute to the larger aim of trying to do well-informed land use planning. I hope it'll be a great resource for the Tiwi people. I can imagine teachers, you know, having student projects and adding more data to the database. Um, and importantly, it gives the Tiwi a template for collecting more data. All data in the database is stored in a single safe location and it belongs to the Tiwi people. So they have full access to it and control of who can access the database. This information is important because it puts data into context and it helps to make sure data is used appropriately. So establishing a good relationship and also being able to build on existing long-term partnerships was critical to have access to the data and to have permission to use it and also to collect uh, the metadata. You know, before my time, all the people said, whatever information they get from TV Island belongs to us. If that information goes out, other people can use it as well. So we protect our own data. What they collect stays on the TV Island. Unless you're pretty satisfied, they can give it to someone else. Because it's very important that we keep it to ourselves, intellectual property. Because I can give you a new story, scenario. I used to work for Australian government with the Youth Suicide Australia. And they have five sites around Australia. TV Island was the first. They collect five communities. But we haven't got that information back. The Australian government got it. And I know where it's sitting at. That's why 
Our leaders have said, things that take care from our community needs to come back. Very important from the older people said. Morning tea was a great opportunity to go and meet people, find out who's in the audience and grab some reflections from the conference participants. I'm Ruth Singer. Uh, I'm in the research unit for Indigenous language at Melbourne Uni. For people who didn't attend the conference this morning, what's the summary, what's the takeaway message? I think the theme of the conference, partnerships, really came out in the discussion session that we had, which is partnerships which have these really great outcomes and really great collaborations between researchers and Indigenous communities often have been going on for a very long time. So this was seen as perhaps an issue, but something to be explored is if you need 15 years, not everybody can do it. But one of the things that came out, I think, is that these things can build up. And once a collaboration's been going on for a long time, other people can step in and join in who don't have that long term because already the trust and the understanding is already there. What are you hoping to get out of this conference? sense of deepening my own understanding. As one of the speakers said, it's an eternal quest to have Indigenous knowledge. So um, deepening my own knowing. My name is Alice Tovey. I'm a project assistant with the New Student Precinct Project. What was the one takeaway message that you got out of this morning's session? What's the thing that captured your imagination the most? What really captured me was I think that sometimes we have such a narrow view of what we think Indigenous issues are and this very much broadened my scope as to what we do need to be focusing on at the university and in the broader community. What's a takeaway for you so far during the conference? This for me is more to sort of gauge perspective to take back to my own tribe. So I represent not only the university but I represent the Wurundjeri Land Council and the Wurundjeri tribe. So the database that was presented from the Tiwi Land Council is definitely something that I can identify what it is that we can take back and sort of implement that in our own sort of way of thinking. Tell us a little bit about the database for those people who weren't here. So database is basically identifying where weeds, plants, wildlife, flora and fauna, where it is, how to identify it, where to identify it, and that way they can sort of make sure that it's sort of... Intact? Yeah, intact, yeah. Oh, and by the way, the people interviewing participants of the conference are myself, Andy Horvath, and my colleague, Sylvie Van Wall. I guess for me, it's about genuine consultation and sitting down side by side with people. My name's Liz Tudor, I'm in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences and for the last 14 years I've run an annual dog health program in Western Arnhem Land and what comes out of that for me is just the importance of relationship. You go in there not wanting something for yourself but wanting to learn and I know it sounds trite but just being prepared to sit beside people and learn with them and from that all sorts of things happen. And for us that's meant the development of um, a little program in West Arnhem which now has spread to uh, West Daly, to uh, Minjalung and Croker Island, Warrawi on Goulburn Island, now extending into a partnership with East Arnhem Regional Council, so moving into East Arnhem. And then on the side of all of that, developing relationship with people and people then saying, hey, you, you good people, we want our kids to go to school down south. Can you, can you take our kids at school down south? And out of that, the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School has, has developed. It's about genuine relationship. Our daughter and our son-in-law have worked remotely in a place called Nunmariyanga, which is um, West Daly region, um, Murunpatha people, um, for the last eight years. And in the time that they've been there, 
the succession of whitefellas just rolling through the community, whether it's in the clinic, whether it's in the shire office, whether it's in the store or the school, this constant churn of white of, of whitefellas. And local people just tire of that. And, and to form genuine relationship when you know people are going to walk away from you in six months, 12 months, 18 months, why would you bother? So... The key is, to me, is educating and providing real opportunities in education for Indigenous children so that they can become the backbones of their own communities and therefore have continuity over time and they become less dependent on us whitefellas rolling through, wanting something for ourselves and hopefully giving something back. Next, we're going to hear about a partnership project with the Kenby Rangers and scientists. The indigenous quolls became an endangered species as poisonous cane toads reached northern parts of Australia. This is a fascinating story of conservation efforts. Here is PhD student Chris Jolly. Toads have just reached the western Kimberley, so they're about to cover almost the entire range of quolls. So the populations of quolls are just blinking out. So they are a really endangered species. But prior to toads arriving in the Northern Territories, the Territory government collected up a bunch of quolls and put them on some offshore islands as uh, reserve populations. And so we had this bank of quolls that we could use to repopulate the mainland. And we trained these quolls not to eat cane toads and uh, some we left as a control and introduced them into Kakadu National Park. And in theory, it was going to work out great, but these islands lacked the predators quolls had evolved with. They didn't have dingoes, they didn't have cats, they didn't have goannas or large pythons. And so although these quolls that we released into Kakadu didn't eat toads, the ones that we didn't train did eat cane toads. The ones that we did train uh, avoided cane toads. They rapidly got eaten by dingoes. So you solve one problem and up comes another. Okay. The question now is, are there places in Australia where there are cane toads and quolls? Because what you've just highlighted is a quoll population that as soon as they lick a cane toad, they're dead. That's exactly right. So yes, there is. For the last 75 years, we've sort of seen that although 90-95% of these populations will disappear, some populations entirely going extinct, there's these little satellite populations of animals that persist. And it, it was sort of theorised that this was learning. They were, they were eating a non-fatal toad, and then from that experience they were surviving. But the difference between a non-lethal toad and a lethal toad is so minute that it almost never happens. So they have virtually no ability to ever have this learning experience. So we suspected it could be a genetic thing. So that was the next thing that we looked at. Yeah, so we hybridised these quolls from North Queensland. So th these quolls we brought into captivity, we checked them, offered them a cane toad, do you want to eat this? No thanks, sir. And they were absolutely not interested in it. However, we got the same quolls from uh, Estelle Island that had been conserved from the mainland, so they never interacted with toads. We offered them toads, and they were very willing to eat them. So what we want to do with this targeted gene flow is not only get what we suspected was a gene for toad aversion, but also the entire complexity of the genes responsible for local adaptation. So uh, that's 
adaptation to climate, to different food sources, to different habitat and different resources. So that's all housed within the genes of the Northern Territory quolls. The genes we want from the Queensland guys is just the toad-averse gene. So by breeding them together and then releasing them into the wild, that should over time select for this animal that's locally adapted but also uh, averse to toads. A critical component of the success of this project was the passionate and dedicated work of the Kenby Rangers. Here is Kenby Aboriginal Land Trust traditional owner Raylene Singh. I love being on my country and working on my country as a ranger. I get to look after significant sites on my land, such as women's sites. I just love being out on my country. I love sharing knowledge with other rangers and I love for that knowledge to be passed on to others. I've been ranger for four years now. Um, a sort of young kid in the community sort of looked back to me and uh, Mango and Raylene and Zoe. You know, a young kid look at the ranger group and say, oh, we want to be a ranger, you know. We want to be like these more here, so... Next up, some commentary from a panel discussion on partnerships, touching on individual leadership and institutional strategy. Here's Professor Marcia Langton. A creation of a body of Indigenous knowledge built up in universities is actually, I think, one of the most precious Australian assets. These knowledge assets are precious because they're unique. If we don't do it, it will never happen. There's nobody else who can do it and we lose them all together. You've heard of the burning of the Great Library at Alexandria or Constantinople. There have been such tragedies throughout human history of the destruction of bodies of knowledge, usually by burning libraries, but you know it happens in other ways as well, through genocides and so on. So this is a real battle against the darkness. The other great outcome from our long partnership with the clans of northeast Arnhem Land is that students have studied under knowledgeable Yolngu people. And um, I have students all around the world now who have learned from Yolngu people and uh, they will never forget it. They all say to me in writing and whenever they see me that it changed their lives, it changed the way they think. Having people who are knowledgeable Actually, actually knowledgeable about an Aboriginal culture is a very rare thing. So you've probably noticed that children learn almost nothing about Aboriginal culture in schools. They learn almost nothing about Aboriginal history in schools. And much of it is uh, distorted. I'm having difficulty finding polite adjectives here, but in any case, um, we all want, I think, for these cultures and traditions to survive and to be healthy. Trust is certainly important, but so too is hard work and clear priorities, working with people to have very clear goals. And I think once your goals are clear, anxieties about ethical quibbles recede and the main thing is to get the job done. And you know, I think the University of Melbourne can be very proud of the tradition of contributing to the protection and preservation of Yolngu traditions. Thank you.
My name's Tiriki Onis. I'm a Yorta Yorta and Jar Jawarung man, but also the lecturer in Indigenous Arts and Culture at the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music and co-director of our new research unit in Indigenous Arts and Culture. I always have a hard time talking about my work because I'm never quite sure what constitutes my work and what doesn't. It's so kind of all-consuming. But at the moment, I'm really passionate about researching culturally safe ways to reclaim, uh, to recreate and to repatriate traditional knowledges and practices back into communities. I think these ideas that we're rediscovering now are incredibly potent, but they mean nothing if we don't take them back and give them away and share them with everyone to whom they belong. My take-home message is that the knowledges that we're rediscovering, the stories that we're sharing with with one another belong to all of us. They belong to place. They belong here in this country. But we also have to acknowledge how incredibly powerful these stories are. We have to acknowledge the legacy of the last 230 years and what's been taken away in finding safe and productive ways to nurture our communities and to share our stories and our knowledges freely with one another once again without fear of recrimination, without fear of harming one another. And I'm intrigued, but I have to ask you about your possum cloak. Are you making yourself a possum cloak? I am making myself a possum cloak. In fact, I'm onto a, currently onto my one, two, three, fourth cloak. Uh, at the moment, the first the first cloak that I finished entirely, I made for my daughter Ninda when she was born uh, two and a half or so years ago now, and it was incredibly powerful at that time. She was the first person in our family to be born with her possum cloak in about seven generations. Before that, of course, it had been a constant stretching back to the uh, to the very beginning, and so I often like to think of that. Those missed seven generations is just a bit of a blip along the road and that those traditions will continue. The most recent cloak I finished uh, was only about two months ago was for my newest daughter, Yelene. So both of my, both of my kids have now uh, been born with their, uh, with their own cloaks. I've made a couple of other test cloaks, one of my biggest and certainly one of the most powerful public journeys I went on was... Uh, with a group of other artists reclaiming the traditional technologies that went into the old cloaks that our old people used to make, working with the raw possum skins, working with kangaroo sinew, discovering all the tools, the methods of creating these cloaks, the stories that had been not lost but dispersed, where so many other members of the community held little morsels, little little pieces of that jigsaw puzzle, and it was an incredibly powerful and incredibly uh, life-affirming process to go through to to be a facilitator to start reclaiming and reconnecting some of these these threads together so that we could share those stories again. Right. I'm Sally Trelloyan. I'm a uh, Senior Research Fellow and ARC Future Fellow in the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music and with the Willen Centre for Indigenous Arts and Cultural Development. Well, my work is really around the sustainability of endangered song and dance in the Kimberley and uh, West Pilbara regions of Western Australia and uh, specifically I've worked long term on the Joomba dance song tradition, a public dance song tradition, performed at festivals, public events and also in more private settings um, throughout the Kimberley. So I've been really interested in just the compositional processes and performance practices that underpin Joomba but also in ways that we can support intergenerational knowledge transmission and really support the, the continuation of Joomba 
into the future. What surprised you along this journey of being involved with communities and capturing their songs? One of the uh, most exciting recent things we've kind of worked out as a group, um, community researchers and myself included, is that the technologies that the elders brought in um, in the 1950s and 60s when they first settled um, off-country in Moandrum, that being these spectacular painted boards that they carry on their shoulders, this is actually a new technology that they use to manage um, their new circumstances off-country. And similarly, young people today are, are, are bringing in and using new technologies, mobile phones, internet, whatever it might be, to similarly gain their place in Joomba and manage their own changing worlds. So we see kind of continuation in, in surprising ways, I guess. Surprising, but not surprising. What's the one thing that you're going to take home that captured your imagination the most? I mean, you've caught me at a, at a moment where I've just come out of a nice panel that was on ethnomusicology and had a really interesting project about the Joomba, which is a dance and, and a ceremonial sort of performance out of Western Australia, out of the Kimberley. So the notion of language preservation through those recordings, I think that a theme that's been popping up in today's symposium is about archives, is about our role as people that work in the industry, as an institution like Melbourne University, to, to establish that archive and keep it alive for the future generations. So I think, you know, things like repatriation and recordings and picking up a camera and podcasts are all tools for that sort of cultural preservation. Tiriki spoke about, what's the word, making a possum skin cloak and making it with other people as well, so it's a community effort, and not only making it for himself and wearing it as part of wearing his heritage and his stories on his sleeve, basically, but also um, being quite happy and open to the um, notion of putting that on exhibition so that the public, no matter white or black or from whatever culture, learn more about our Australian Aboriginal culture. Alistair, you're one of the speakers today. What's your take-home message for us here at the conference today? Well, we heard a lot today about um, trust and respect, and I think um, you can talk about partnerships, but it's real relationships and building those up as a personal human-to-human rather than as institutions. You know, that's how you build trust and that's how you get respect. And, And so having that engagement with communities is the way to sort of build and set up those relationships. Hey, you're halfway through and here's why you should keep listening. It's a comment from Marcia Langton. Being a a boring old academic, it's not so much my imagination, but I'm thinking about the quality of the research design of each one of the projects that we've heard about from the presenters And I'm also reflecting on the research higher degree students who presented, all very high quality. And I'm impressed that the partnership research projects are so rich, innovative and uh, fundamentally important research projects, whether they're in um, science or in the humanities. I wish there were more research higher degree students here because they could learn so much from this. I think it's very unfortunate that people in the academy think, oh, it's just an Indigenous research conference, we've got nothing to learn from that. 
if they had sent their research higher degree students along to hear at least some of the presentations, they would have learned something, first of all, about the potential for doing research in the Indigenous areas. They're often told not to do that. Secondly, they would learn that your research is not compromised by working with Indigenous people, it is enriched. And thirdly, that working in partnership with Indigenous people improves research outcomes in all sorts of ways. And as for going forward, what would I recommend? Well, simply that um, people considering doing research on Indigenous topics should come to the University of Melbourne because clearly what we do here is excellent. My colleague Sylvie Van Wall and I are now going to guide you into the final day two of the conference, Indigenous Place and Partnerships Conference, recorded April 2018 at the University of Melbourne. Next up, we explore gathering places in Victoria and how they are sites of belonging and really important to health and well-being. Here is Anne Jenkins from Hillsville Indigenous Community Services. It's all about community for us. Without community, we wouldn't exist. We provide just a safe space for community to come in and, and meet and connect with each other. We had a new member come into community and she was looking for family and she was mentioning a few people so I knew some of the families that she could be related to so I suggested that you know she contact these people and I put her in touch with them. As a result of that and after a couple of meetings she saw a photo of her mum for the first time in her life by being connected up with these community members so you know that might not have happened without the gathering place being there and for her to come in and access services. We heard just the most amazing stories when we went and we spoke to different gathering places about the importance of gathering places in people's lives. Each gathering place has its own model and its own relevance to the place and the history where it is. And that was Emily Munro Harrison from the University of Melbourne. Our next partnership presentation, Unfitness to Plead, is by Pierre and Jody. so please welcome them up. It's not easy, and I think especially speaking as an early career researcher, um, to try to foster those kind of relationships with community uh, and, and people outside of the academia. It takes time and it takes effort, and it's not necessarily valued in the kind of formal structures of the university, but to really honour those relationships, you do have to put in a lot of time and, and energy. And it's been a learning process. I mean, even some of the tensions between sort of uh, advocacy organisations' expectations and our expectations, it requires negotiation constantly. And, you know, a lot of funding bodies require that we set out a pretty sort of uh, clear plan about what we do. But when you start these partnerships, you might get information from people saying, no, actually, we need to do something quite different to that. And you need to be responsive to those because ultimately the research is there to serve the organisations who are going to be able to use it effectively to uh, create political change. So that's, that's an issue, a broader issue about kind of academic structures and and building in some flexibility so that you can be really responsive to the people who are on the ground, people who are really involved in this stuff day to day. That was researcher Dr Pierre's Gooding. Next up, researcher Miss Selena Doria. Our next partnership presentation is by Selena Doria, who's going to be talking about exploring interpersonal violence amongst Australian Aboriginal women in their own words. So please welcome Selena. Hadala Isis, 
Atlan Hilis, Ati Gulange Laang. My name is Selena. I'm so happy to be here. I am a Haida First Nations woman, and I live in the United States, hence the accent. So my research is more broadly focused on violence against indigenous women in the US and in Australia. And today I will be telling the story of one Torres Strait Islander woman who I met while doing research here in Australia last year. And so I'm just going to talk and tell you her story. So the morning is cold and crisp. The bright sunlight pierces through the car windshield. I sit next to Sarah. Her long black hair falls delicately behind her back. We're huddled in her car, cradling our coffee cups and batting sleep away from our eyes. Her car broke down again, the second time this week, and her partner isn't picking up his phone. So we talk for two hours, waiting for him to come jump the battery. Conversation drifts between work and weekend plans, eventually leading us toward her ideas for the future. She tells me, I'm ready. This time, I'm going home, and nobody is going to stop me. I'm struck by this deep longing to return home. It's a longing we can all relate to. But for Sarah, this desire to return to country is much deeper than just homesickness. It is precisely what will allow for her to heal from her trauma. As I pack up my bag to leave, she asks, will you wait until he gets here? I want him to know I'm not with another man. So this research is focused on perceptions and experiences of interpersonal violence among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women living in a rural community in northeastern Victoria. Sarah's story is one of both pain and violence, as well as survival and healing. Sharing stories of resiliency and resistance of indigenous women is important to subvert and reclaim colonial narratives that continue to erase indigenous existence. So by sharing Sarah's voice, I hope to raise critical consciousness around violence against indigenous women and create space to honor indigenous narratives. Because we are called as service providers, scholars, community members, to listen and bear witness, as Sarah tells me. I'm happy to share all these stories because it's helpful. It's a part of my healing process to talk about it. Hawa, thank you. My colleague Sylvie Van Wall interviews Leon White from Uricala Homeland School. The presentation was about the Yerikala schools and its partnership with Melbourne Uni, but other partnerships as part of its uh, ongoing program development. And what's the take-home message from the presentation? Each place has a history, and so for the school intergenerational knowledge for those young kids, the kids to know the history of their place and how they're related to each other because uh, in a young way, places are related to each other like people, so you can refer to a place as your mother or some other relationship. And what's your personal understanding of place? Well, I grew up in a town here in Victoria called Witchy Proof, 
So I'm very careful, although I've lived at Yellowcala for over 40 years, not to sort of claim ownership of Yellowcala. I work at Yellowcala, not uh, give the idea I'm from Yellowcala, because a lot of problems are around personal pronouns, my school, my community, when in fact your school and your community was a long way away. And it's a very important message for non-Indigenous teachers or people working in communities owned by a different set of people. And so hypothetically, you were suddenly in charge of the country and in charge of Indigenous affairs. What's the first thing that you're changing? I'd give remote communities the funding that the costs of providing the services uh, demand as opposed to some really bad mathematical calculation of dollars that doesn't equal the cost. Right now I'm putting you in charge of the country with any of your fellow Indigenous aunties and uncles. What do you want to change? I think there's been a lot of talk about treaty. Now if we want to start making real change I think we've got to go back to some of the truth-telling that was talked about as well. How do we make real proper partnerships? There's got to be a foundation of having that treaty in place as well as acknowledging some of the past historical you know, atrocities really that's happened to our people in this country. Yeah. Tomorrow, hypothetically, we put you in charge as the head of the country and you're working with Indigenous brothers and sisters. What's the one thing that you want to change first or implement first? I very much liked how this morning there was very much a focus on the learning of young women. That is an issue that is very close to my heart. So I would very much implement more strategies to help more young Indigenous women with their education because I think that is hugely important. I'm hypothetically putting you in charge of the country. What do you want to do? Uh, land rights is my first kind of big one. Just proper freehold title of land, nothing kind of watered down. I think being able to assert our sovereignty and our identity over place is so incredibly uh, vital and I think it's only to the betterment of all peoples of Australia not just Aboriginal people so land rights please that'd be that'd be really nice. Sally? Oh what can I say I think for me what I would say are that Indigenous arts music uh, song dance visual arts the whole uh, continuum of Indigenous arts these are the classical traditions of Australia and uh, some of the richest and deepest traditions in the world. So we should all listen, watch and learn more. Let's dance. (laughs) (laughs) And sing. (laughs) Next up, there was a fantastic session on connecting Indigenous knowledge and the biosciences. Here's a sample from the discussion. There was a fabulous question and an exciting response by Dr Ken Winkle. So I'm a non-Indigenous engineering researcher. So I want to talk about objectivity, data, and story. So we're looking at a project out in Western Victoria at Budge Bim, and we're also looking at Corindirk uh, to do archaeological drone flights and trying to map that community. So as researchers, we just want to fly drones and collect data. But in the discussions with the Wanduna State, it is how do they take that data and create the story? So, you know, for me, I'm struggling to remain mute because I'm a talkative New Yorker to allow them to take that data and frame it. But what I'm concerned about is a partnership where we agree that we're going to acquire data, 
But that data may, let, let's, let's just assume that, that, that there's a finding from our exploration that is not part of their story, right? So how, how do we as uh, scientists and researchers trying to be objective is like, I have found X, right? And so I need to record that data. Um, and then how do they take that and frame and build their story? So I worry about that. The other point I struggle with is objectivity in trying to bring in uh, indigenous members of the community to do some of that data interpretation. And we're looking at doing that with LIDAR, acquiring data and then training indigenous community individuals to interpret that data. But if they have that subjectivity of place, if they know that place, are they going to be imposing their values or their assumptions on that data interpretation? And from a Western scientific point of view, you don't want to do that. So how, how do I resolve that and, and be um, objective in my science to allow and, and bring that in? So I, I, I struggle with that. So anyway, those are some of the challenges I face. Any comments from the panel on that? As an example, having a PhD in the Western scientific tradition, barely do we ever reflect on the fact that this is a doctor of philosophy. And yet I talked to my colleague Kerry Arabina and I realised, well, actually we're all philosophers without often reflecting and unpacking, unpacking what are our philosophical positions that we are bringing to our so-called scientific objectivity. And one example of how we're impoverished by the Western tradition is in the Linnaean binomial classification where I'm not an ecologist, but I've learned from some of our linguist colleagues from this university of how some Aboriginal peoples in Central Australia have an ecologically based nomenclature system which explicitly informs you about the ecological relationships of the animal that you're talking about with certain plants. Whereas if you look at the scientific nomenclature, it's totally stripped of ecological information. It may reference some old whitefella academic who was involved in naming this in a laboratory who didn't collect it. But the ecological information that's embedded in the native language of that country, place, tells you far more in certain ways about the ecology of that organism. And so there's an impoverishment, a lack of objectivity almost, of some of our tools if we ignore the indigenous knowledge based on place. Yeah, to me, the, the gathering that we have here today is, is really important and being able to speak across a room or a, a, across a table and, and look at people in the eye and, and have a conversation and have, an, have a yarn is really important. It's, it's drawing upon the knowledge holders as well who are the custodians of that, that deep understanding and so starting to furnish those opportunities of where we can have these conversations is really important and, and that's why you know, these yarns are, are such a, a special thing to be a part of. There was a panel discussion on the possibility of place-based research to prioritise innovative and locally defined solutions to contemporary problems. Here's a snippet from Bruce Pascoe. He's the author of Dark Emu, which puts forward an argument for the reconsideration of the hunter-gatherer tag for pre-colonial Aboriginal Australians. Jonathan Jones was um, at the Adelaide Museum recently and, you know, being the subversive that he is, 
uh, he decided to have a look in the bowels of their museum at stuff that had never been exposed to the public before. Here we have pottery, Aboriginal pottery, never referred to in our history. I showed this uh, photograph at Cooktown recently and they said, oh yeah, that's like our pots, except ours were black and red. Cook collected the pottery of the people from that region and took it back to England, where it is said it compared really well with the current English pottery of the time. So how come our books of history don't refer to it? The other thing that we've done since Dark Emu is to actually grow Murnong. And these small tubers here, they're about a quarter the size of a potato, but seven times as nutritious. They don't require any more water than Australia can provide, no fertiliser at all. They don't need any pesticide. They ought to be part of our diet. They ought to be part of our economy, and they ought to be uh, part of the resurrection of our economic future, Aboriginal economic future. This is going to be the challenge for Australia, not that it wants to start eating Aboriginal foods, um, but what I've said about these things is you can't eat our food if you can't swallow our history. So you have to accept both things. You have to accept the fact that Aboriginal people had sovereignty and were performing agricultural work and that that in itself is enough to make sure that Aboriginal people get land back. Here are some closing remarks from Professor Marcia Langton. As a student of a couple of Indigenous knowledge systems, I'd just like to say a couple of things. One, you have to live with people for a very long time. You have to learn to speak their language. These are vast knowledge systems. They're not accessible through cultural studies approaches, especially for the scientists who might think that a reconciliation action plan stands in for studying an actual Indigenous knowledge system. Indigenous knowledge systems exist. They don't compete with science and people who have truly studied them don't make claims about them to say that they are scientific. No, Western science has its own history and trajectory and so too do Indigenous knowledge systems. Acknowledging that these Indigenous knowledge systems exist and coming to understand them more fully involves understanding that the human population survived for most of human history, for most of the history of Homo sapiens sapiens, with what we call today Indigenous knowledge systems. And most of the world's agriculture is produced by Indigenous and local knowledge systems. What's your personal understanding of place? For me personally, um, a place is a sense of community, I think. If you have an established community that supports you and you support that, then you have comfort in that place. Um, I work in Indigenous communities in remote Northern Territory and those places have taught me about, you know, whether it be remote or urban in the middle of Melbourne, it's if the community exists, then you have that sense of safe place. Uh, good partnerships are a sense of mutual respect and a mutual commitment to an idea. It's two parties that have a drive to want to succeed and benefit each other. Hi, it's Andy Horvath here again. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of Event FOMO fear of missing out, except it was really conference FOMO. 
Thank yous go to Meredith Lewis and Dr. Nikki Moody and for everyone involved in the Place and Partnerships Conference. This podcast was recorded on April 5 and 6, 2018 at the Melbourne Brain Centre at the University of Melbourne. Thanks to the podcasting team, Sylvie Van Wall and Arch Cuthbertson. <laughs>